morning, church. How are we going? Good, good, good. Um, two things happened as I was leading up to this morning. Uh, last night, I was brushing my teeth and I was brushing my teeth looking at the mirror and I suddenly saw a few glistening white things above me. And I realised that there's little white hairs that are growing out of me. <laughs> Thought it would be distracting as I preach and the light's shining on me. So part of sermon prep actually became plucking out white hairs. Never thought I'd have to do that, but I guess now that I'm 31, it's a truth that I have to try and embrace. The second thing that happened was this morning as I was spending time with God, I was reminded of a little thing that my wife, Christy, shared with me uh, quite a few weeks ago, but I was suddenly reminded of it as I was praying. I wanted to share this with you guys. This is a reflection from Oswald Chambers. Um, he was reflecting on the passage where the Israelites didn't want to go, out to go up to Mount Sinai to hear from God themselves, but they wanted Moses to be their messenger. And this is what Oswald Chambers says. Why are we so terrified for God to speak to us? It's because we know that when God speaks, we must either do what He asks or tell Him we will not obey. But if it's simply one of God's servants speaking to us, we feel obedience is optional, not imperative. So I want to encourage you guys this morning as we start this First Peter series that yes, when we come to a church on Sunday, it is different pastors who are speaking to you, uh, doing our best attempt to be faithful to the text. And we, we are the ones speaking to you, not necessarily God audibly speaking to you guys. But every time we are speaking and you've got your Bibles open and what we're saying reflects the truth of God, your command is to obey. Coming to a Sunday is not about, I'm gonna pick and choose what I wanna hear and what I, the things that I like, I'm gonna embrace and live out. Coming to church on Sunday is hearing God speak and goes, wherever God speaks truth, and I see it aligned in the Bible, my role is to obey. So I hope we can come with that posture this morning. So turn to one another and say, let's listen with reverence. Turn to one another and say that. Cool, so I wanna start with a hypothetical scenario with you guys. So just imagine this scene with me, okay? Imagine you've been listening to some testimony videos on Sundays and testimonies from your friends, and maybe you've been reading the monthly missions newsletter that our missions team has been publishing, and you've been really inspired to live out this missional life. So you go out to reach out to one of these neighbours who you've never met before for the first time. So you knock on the door, you say hi, you connect, you have them over for dinner, and at first, things are going really, really well. You guys get along, you have a great laugh together, you're enjoying really good food, and you feel like it's the start of a blossoming friendship. And then the next day, you talk to your other neighbour about this catch-up that you just had, and this neighbour that you already know tells you, oh, there's something strange about this neighbour that you just met that I've got to tell you. They kind of belong in this cult. They, they get together with their fellow believers, and what they do for, as their way of worship is they would actually drink human blood. They would eat human meat. That's the way they worship. And on top of that, this is a bit weird, but they, when they get together with their siblings, they're really intimate, like a lot more intimate than what's socially acceptable. And they're also really big on inviting others to join them. So you might get an invite next time. You know, if you are listening to that and you're like, oh, that's a little bit strange, you have an idea of how the Romans back in the New Testament times would have viewed Christians during the time when the letter of 1 Peter was written. Why do I say that? Because during that time, the Christian movement was a minority group. It was starting to gain momentum and it was starting to uh, establish itself. And the Rome saw them as a possible threat, as uh, damaging to the established order. And they were being accused for a few things that they were being grossly misunderstood for. They were being grossly misunderstood for three things in particular. 
The first was cannibalism. They thought Christians were cannibals because they would talk about communion, what we just had, eating the body of Christ, drinking the blood of Christ, and they thought they were doing that literally. So they thought whenever they got together, they were physically eating their master. The second thing they were accused for was incestuous acts because as a body of Christ, we call each other brothers and sisters in Christ and we say we love each other. And that was being misunderstood as them performing incestual acts. And the last thing, which is really interesting, is they were being accused as being atheists because during that time, they worshipped many, many different gods and idols and statues, including their emperor. Their emperor was a powerful god, a king that they deemed as a god as well, and they would bow down to him in worship. But Christians refused to worship any of these idols, any of these statues, and they refused to bow down to the emperor as well. The only person they worshipped was someone who was once a human, who in the Romans' eyes had died and have stayed dead. <laughs> and it was a human being that they were worshipping. So they called Christians atheists. So because of all these accusations and differences, you can imagine how difficult it must have been to live as a Christian, as a minority at the time, being judged for the things that you weren't even doing just by living out your faith. Now, I want to be clear here. Whenever we say in 1 Peter that people are experiencing hardship, it's not necessarily that every single one of them are being persecuted and that their lives are on the line every day. It could be various types of trials. Persecution at the time was very sporadic. Sometimes it happened, sometimes it didn't. It also varied in intensity. So some were very, very mild, just light mockery, and others were very, very intense. And in those intense moments, lives were on the line. But it wasn't periodically all over the place consistently that people were being persecuted and being martyred. But nonetheless, it would have been challenging times to live in that context. So as Peter writes that letter, which is this letter that we'll be unpacking over the next 12 weeks, what he hopes to do is he's trying to encourage the believers to stand firm in their faith, to say you're living in trials and it's challenging times, but you can still stand firm. And that same encouragement that Peter gives to the early New Testament Christians is the same encouragement that I hope we can take out of this morning and as we go through this series. So I'm going to read through the first 12 verses. Follow along with me. Today I'm going to read from the NIV. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1 to 12. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with His blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Praise be to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, in His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have to suffer grief in all kinds of trials." These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And even though you do not see Him now, you believe in Him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you're receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets 
who spoke of the grace that was to come to you, search intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word that is timeless, that the same encouragements that spoke to the believers at the time can be the same encouragements that we can apply and live out as we look to you as our Lord and Saviour. So God, I pray that you give everyone here a posture of humility as we speak, that they're here to listen, not just listen to your word, but to listen and obey. And God, I pray that Holy Spirit, you'll do a mighty work in this place, penetrate hearts and challenge and help us to live it out by your power. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The first thing we start before we even talk about what uh, Peter actually talked about in the passage is how he addressed his people. There's two big words that he uses that's really, really important, elect and exiles. When we think of God's election, those of us who've been in church for a little while longer, you'll probably think of the word predestination, the idea that God elects certain individuals to be saved, but not others. Now, predestination is a topic in the Bible. It's something that Paul talks about a lot in detail in Ephesians and in Romans, but Peter here isn't diving into the details of exactly how election works behind the scenes in the supernatural realm. Nor is he trying to give us a theological lesson about election, but what he is doing is that he's affirming the believers reading this letter of their corporate identity. He's speaking not to an individual here. Remember, he's speaking to five different provinces, a massive group of believers, and he's reminding them, all of you are God's elect. God had in mind from the beginning of time that he was gonna elect Abraham, and through Abraham, he was gonna bless the entire nation of Israel. And through, through Israel was, was gonna come through their lineage, our Lord Jesus Christ, and through Jesus, he was gonna bless all people. That was the covenantal promise that he had given way back in Genesis 12 already, but he already knew that, of course, way before Genesis 12 as well. And we are all part of that covenantal promise. Whoever that believes in Jesus, we are grafted into this family of Christ. We become part of God's elect. The same God who was faithful throughout the generations is the same God who is faithful to us today. The church is the new Israel. We are all God's elect. That's our identity. But at the same time, Peter also acknowledges to these believers that even though you are God's elect, your present reality is that you are also living as an exile. Firstly, in a physical sense, they were living in Rome. That wasn't where their true home is for the Israelites. They were living as foreigners in a foreign province, having to submit to foreign governance. But more importantly, Peter's reminding them because the letter is probably speaking not just to Jews, but Jews and Gentiles as well. He's reminding all of them that as Christians, that you are exiles of this world. So if something doesn't feel quite right, if you wanna live for God and but God's rule doesn't seem like it's quite happening, he's saying it's because this isn't your true home. Your true home is in heaven with God. So essentially, Peter is saying this, just by starting this letter, calling them elect exiles, he's saying, you are an exile, so you should expect sometimes life to not go quite the way it should. You should expect challenges. But at the same time, don't be discouraged. 
because you're also God's elect. He is with you. He's going to journey with you. He's there. And there's a glorious future that awaits you. You're in exile, but you're also an elect. First Peter chapter 5, Peter himself says these words. This is how he summarizes what his letter is about. He says, my purpose in writing is to encourage you and assure you that what you are experiencing as an exile is truly part of God's grace as his elect. So stand firm in this grace. This dual reality that as Christians that we are elect and we are exiles is something that we all have to hold on to in tandem. Because if you just embrace the fact that you are God's elect, you'll feel really victorious as if nothing can get your way. But then when life challenges gets thrown at you and you feel like your life, is, your lived experience is not very victorious at all, you'll wonder what's happening and you'll lose sight of God. At the same time, if all you believe is that you're in an exile and that this isn't your true home, this isn't how way things are meant to be, you'll live life pretty bitter. You'll expect nothing but disappointment because no nothing about this world is where you want to be. And every time something bad happens, you're reminded that you don't belong here and you detach yourself from the world and you get more and more discouraged. But when you put them in together, you realize that yes, while we live in a sin-impacted world and life isn't the way it should be, God is with us. God can use us in this present imperfection and we can press on with hope and perseverance because there's a glorious future that's ahead of us as well. And that's the identity that Peter is reminding the believers as they read this letter. Now, what's really interesting now with this identity cleared up is that from verse three all the way to verse 12, the rest of the passage, Peter actually only has one thing to say. Why do I say that? Because in the Greek language, it's actually just one sentence, one very long sentence, but it's one sentence. And the one thing Peter is trying to get to the believers is verse three. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Everything else is just explaining why that statement is true. So all praise to God. So Peter gives us, in the way I broke it down, three ways, three reasons why God deserves praise. Even remember their context, they're living in a difficult time. Why is that in challenges, praising God is still our natural response? So one at a time. First one is that we have the hope of salvation. When we think about modern counseling, you know, how do we be empathetic to our friends who are hurting? You know, we tend to think about spending our time listening, right? Let's listen before we speak. Let's comfort them that their emotions are valid. Uh, let's uh, help them reflect through present circumstances, past events, and help them unpack their emotions. But the first thing Peter does is not to just point them to their present hardship. Peter is pointing them to their future inheritance. Peter's telling them, hey, your situation may not be ideal. It shouldn't be this way, but praise God. Why? Because we have a hope to hold on to. As believers, we have the hope of salvation. What exactly is salvation and this hope that we have? Salvation is this idea that we're being rescued by God for the consequences of our wrongdoings. The Bible is really clear that none of us are actually good people. All of us have sinful nature within us and therefore we sometimes and actually quite often make mistakes that not just hurt God, but hurt the horizontal relationships around us with one another as well. And the Bible says that because of our sin, what we rightfully deserve the only thing we rightfully deserve is sin, sorry, is death and judgment. 
But the Bible is also really clear that our God is a God who's rich in mercy. He loves us. He didn't want us to leave us in the way we are in our judgment. So He sends Jesus to absorb that penalty of death Himself. And because Jesus paid the cost, whoever believes in Him can now have eternal life with God rather than to spend eternal life in judgment. So this hope of salvation is the future inheritance that Peter is talking about, eternity with God. You know, all the perishable things we can buy today, no matter how good quality they are, will one day perish. Even things that are built to last and things that we can try our best to maintain, over time they will spoil and they will decrease in value. Even intangibles, our good memories, you know, uh, the prestigious nature of our job titles and our accomplishments, one day will be faded and forgotten as well. But Peter says our gift of salvation is eternal. It will never perish, it will never fade, it will never spoil. And on top of that, it's also a guaranteed inheritance. It's guaranteed because Jesus is alive. He has risen from the dead and He is the evidence that this gift is still readily available for us. And on top of that, God Himself says in verse 6 that He will shield this inheritance by His power. You know, sometimes we make a reservation at a restaurant or at a hotel. It doesn't happen often, but once in a blue moon, you may have experienced. You go there and you tell them that you've made a reservation and you realize that either there's a glitch in the system or the front desk has made a mistake and your reservation is not there anymore. And you get really frustrated because you reserved it, but it wasn't there. Some reservations, we think just because it's reserved, it's there, but it doesn't mean that it's guaranteed. But God is saying by His power, by His all-powerful nature, He will shield this inheritance for us. It's as guaranteed as guaranteed can be. There is no greater assurance than that. So if you fix your eyes on this hope of inheritance, hope of salvation, this future inheritance you have that is eternal and it's guaranteed, there will always be a reason to praise. Now, I want to be clear here. I'm not trying to invalidate any present challenges or trials that you're currently going through. Peter does spend a bit of time talking about that in the next few verses. But I am saying, even in those moments, if you fix your eyes on the future inheritance that you have, the most undeserving and the most precious and wonderful gift anyone can ever ask for for all eternity, it paints every other present trial in its correct perspective. Take the Apostle Paul as an example. He lived a really hard life. In 2 Corinthians, he shares a bit of the challenges that he goes through. He was, um, he was put in prison several times, whipped time and time again, beaten with rods, stoned, shipwrecked, faced dangers from all the different places he went to, as well as all the different people groups he tried to interact with. But this same Paul, with this, all those experiences of trial, says this in 2 Corinthians Corinthians 4.17, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. All those hardships that I just explained that the Apostle Paul had to go through, he himself describes them as light and momentary. Why? Because in comparison to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus and the eternal glory that awaits him, this is nothing in comparison. So in a similar way, Peter is encouraging the believers. Yes, you are living in challenging times, but praise God for the hope 
that you have. Don't get swallowed up by the present challenges and fix your eyes on your present situations only. Don't be so narrow-minded. That's what the pagans and the unbelievers do. He says, but you guys set your eyes on the hope of salvation and allow that to be a reason for you to praise God. What does that mean for all of us today? You know, there's a really popular saying that goes along, the way, along like this. It says, we praise God in the good times, but we pray in the bad times. Now, I think that's catchy. I think that's got a lot of truth to it. We should pray and praise. But throughout Scripture and Peter's encouragement, which is consistent with that, is that even in the bad times, we can still praise God as well. So you have to ask yourself, do you praise God when life gets tough? If that's not something you currently do, then Peter is encouraging you, hey, take your eyes off your present circumstances. I see it too, but I want you to fix your eyes on me. Fix your eyes on the eternal hope that you have and allow that to be a reason for your praise. So the first reason Peter gives is why we can praise God at times in moments of challenges and trials is because we have the hope of salvation. The second reason he gives is this, that our suffering can serve to prove our faith. Moving on to verse six, he gives us a reality check that while we can rejoice, for now we'll have to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Firstly, he says these are trials, not tribulations, not persecutions, because he's referring to a variety of general problems that the early Christians had to face of varying intensity, as I mentioned earlier. But secondly, he says that you will suffer grief from it as well. This is the part where you catch a little bit of Peter's pastoral heart. He's not just saying, forget about the problems, just praise God. <laughs> that would be insensitive. That would sound like what I say to people sometimes. <laughs> what he's, he's also not saying, he's, not, or he's also not saying you're not allowed to be sad. That's not what Peter's saying because in moments of real trial, Grief is an appropriate human response. Even Job's fairly insensitive friends sat with Job for seven whole days in silence because they saw how much Job, a righteous man, was grieving. So if you are going through seasons of trials for reasons that I do not know, but we know God does, Peter is saying it's okay. You may have to suffer grief as you go through all kinds of trials. It's okay. But I also want to be gentle here, but bold in highlighting a truth. Whenever this specific word grief, in the Greek it's lepeo, is used in the Bible, it's almost always in the context of, this is how you feel right now, but that shouldn't be the way. This is how you feel right now, but there is a better response. Take Peter's letter to 1 Thessalonians as an example. It says in 4.13, Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so you do not grieve lepeo like the rest of mankind who have no hope. Peter is saying grieve is a natural response, especially in the death of a loved one. But you will only stay grieving if you have no hope like the unbelievers. But as believers, you do have a hope, and that hope should allow you to progress that grief into praise. And another example, which I took out, but I feel I now want to share it again. <laughs> so it's not going to be on the notes, but uh, 
in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus was praying, and many of you know that he was, this was just before he was going to uh, die, and he was praying and sweating blood. And we remember that the disciples that came with him fell asleep, and Jesus rebukes them, right? We often think that Jesus is rebuking them to go, hey, like, why are you so lazy? You shouldn't just sleep, pray. But in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus says this one extra little bit that, the, that Luke captures that the rest of the gospel doesn't. It says that Jesus rebukes them for falling asleep as they were exhausted from grief. They were tired and they fell asleep because they were exhausted from grief. The overwhelming amount of grief led them to worry and that worry led them to be fatigued and that fatigue eventually made them sleep. And Jesus, that's why Jesus rebukes them and say, you need to pray. He's not saying pray against fatigue. He's pray against your desire to grieve because that shouldn't be the way when you're following the Lord and Savior of your life. So that's why I said Peter has a pastoral heart here because to be pastoral doesn't just mean you're lovey-dovey, you encourage people, say nice things, say what they wanna hear. It's to lovingly care for them in their present trials, but to also love them enough to challenge them towards God's truth. Peter is saying, yes, you may need to grieve in this moment, but praise is your better response. In these trials, not only do we have the hope of salvation to cling on to, the suffering also serves another purpose, and that is that it proves our faith. And this faith is of greater worth than gold. The thing about gold is that you run it through fire for two reasons. The first one is to purify it. When you run it through fire, it melts into liquid molten gold. It becomes pure gold that separates itself from all other impurities. That's how you make gold pure. The second time you run it through fire is to test it, is to prove that it really is pure. So you run it through fire again and go, wow, there is no impurities. That way, this gold really is pure gold. In the same way, as a Christian, when you go through seasons of trial, trials of fire, if you want to put it that way, the Bible in the other parts of the passage talks about how suffering can be used to refine us, take away the impurities, refines our character. Suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, character, hope. That's what it says in Romans. But here in Peter, Peter's saying there's another value to it, a second point, and that that's, it proves that our faith is genuine. And this proof isn't to prove it to God because God is all-knowing, right? He knows everything. He knows the depths of our heart better than we do. He already knows but it's to prove it to ourselves that our faith is genuine and that encourages us to keep going. You know, if you ask me, do you love Christy, my wife? Um, that would be the same response that I'll give you, whether it was eight years ago when we first started dating or today. The answer would be yes. <laughs> you hope it would be. Um, <laughs> but what's the difference between the two yeses? The first yes I haven't really proven to myself that I really do love her. It's an emotional, highly emotional feeling. We've spent a little bit of time together. We enjoy hanging out. We haven't really gone through any arguments or conflict or hardship yet. I just feel like I really love her. Eight years later, I'm so much more assured of my love for her because we've gone through so much more. We've gone through celebrations together. We've gone through seasons of trial. We've gone through moments when we were the reason for one another's hurt. And we learn to forgive one another. We learn to overcome those moments and communicate better. And now through all those highs and lows, I'm so much more assured that my love for her is a genuine one. 
And for those of you who are married for so much longer than I am, you've even gone through the joys and the challenge of raising kids and having a family together, you know, you would know so much more how assured you are, not just of your love to your spouse, but you're so much more secured in your spouse's love for you as well. So in the same way, how do you know that your faith in Christ is a genuine one? You don't necessarily prove that on a Sunday morning when believers gather together and maybe it's easier to be a Christian here than not to be in this space. But you prove the genuineness of your faith when you go through trials, right? When you have to make tough decisions to not compromise on your faith, when you have to make sacrifices to stand up for Jesus, when you take the harder, narrower path simply out of obedience to God because you love Him. Those are the moments when your faith is tested and only a faith that is tested can be trusted. So God can use our suffering to refine and prove our faith. If you keep that in mind, then when you look at suffering, in the immediate reaction we have is to run away from pain. And we want to do everything we can to eliminate that pain. But what we're seeing here is that God can use suffering for our good. It can actually be a blessing. As many of you would agree with my own experience as well, but the moments when I have come back to and realized that my faith to Jesus really is a genuine one has never been just moments of celebration and moments when life was comfortable. It has always been challenging times when I say, Jesus, I need you. Jesus, I need more of you. Those are the moments that I can look back to and go, wow, God has done such a work in my heart compared to where I used to be. There's so much more I need to grow in, but God has done what a work in my life. Even Paul says, you know, we can praise God in all circumstances and all includes highs and your lows. This may seem counterintuitive, but suffering has a purpose behind it. And for that, we can praise God. So Peter says we can praise God because one, we have the hope of salvation. Two, because our suffering can prove our faith. And then he gives us one more point to give us a home run. And he gives us one more reason. And that third reason is this we have the full revelation of God's redemptive plan. Peter ends by reminding us a really, really important truth, that as New Testament Christians today, we are at a really special moment of human history, one where the Old Testament prophets wanted to know so much more about. You know, you see the prophets in the Old Testament were given special revelation by God. They had a really intimate relationship with God. They knew that God was gonna redeem His people one day, and that was going to be an incredible display of mercy and glory. But in verse 10 to 12, it says this, concerning this salvation, the prophets search intently to find out the time and the circumstances that the Spirit of Christ was pointing to. It says the Holy Spirit inspires these prophets to pen down these words onto paper, to write down God's Word. They knew that something amazing was going to happen, but they didn't have all the details. You know, we often have this kind of grass is greener on the other side mentality. And this phrase, it's just funny, but I was talking to mum about this phrase and mum forgot about the phrase and says, the neighbour has a better lawn. <laughs> it's a very Aussie way to say it. So we often think the neighbour has a better lawn. But, and we think that life would be better if we lived in someone else's shoes, right? We think, imagine being like one of the prophets like Moses, who could hear God audibly, you know, he had all these amazing experiences, could perform miracles in the power and presence of God. How amazing would that be? Now, this is Francis Chan's analogy, but imagine if Moses was right next to you right now. You had a chance to have coffee with him. 
I would imagine you would be like, Moses, tell me everything. What was it like when you were up there at Mount Sinai and you heard God audibly? What was that experience like? Tell me. You know, or you might be like, Moses, what was it like when you held out the staff and the Red Sea just split apart and God used you of all people to save the entire nation of Israel? That's crazy. Can you tell me more about that? But chances are, Moses would look back to you and go, no, 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 wait, 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 before that, can you tell me everything? And you're just like, me? Like, what about me? I'm just a your typical guy in Perth and I work in the CBD. There's nothing special about me. But he's like, no, 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 no. Is it true that you know all about the life of the Messiah? Is it true that you've got his life, his teachings, his grand plan of redemption all recorded into a book that's in your pocket right now? Can I read it? Is it true? And it's not just the prophets. In verse 12, it says that even the angels longed to see. It's a short eight verse of the, of the last past part of the passage. I don't want to spend too much on it, but as I was studying this passage coincidentally last year, it was these eight words that really shook me. Even the angels longed to see. Angels are these supernatural beings that are way more powerful than us as mere humans. They existed long before us. They have great partnership with God. Some of them even serve in God's divine counsel. They're incredibly intimate and relational with God. Yet, the Bible says that even they longed to see how this grand plan of redemption, how the gospel was gonna take place. But we, as mere human beings, tiny little human beings created by God, just because we live in the New Testament times, we know the full gospel story. We know everything in light of hindsight, how Jesus was the one who saved the world. We have full certainty and clarity that God has and will continue to redeem the world. But instead of being blown away by this revelation, sometimes we fall into the trap of just thinking the gospel is just repeated old news to us. Reading God's redemption plan in His Word in our morning times has just become a chore to some of us. A pastor once said, we've become a people who store God's Word in our pockets, but no longer in our hearts. So Peter is reminding us, don't lose sight of this incredible news that you have, which we call the gospel. It's this good news that even the prophets wanted to know more about, and even the angels longed to see unfold. When trials come your way, you're not just clinging onto this hope as if it's wishful thinking. It's not like, oh, I wish I'd go home and mum will cook me, you know, miso butter steak tonight. You know, it's not kind of wishful thinking where you don't know whether it's going to happen. You have full clarity when you hold on to this hope that God has already redeemed the world. You hold on to the hope with certainty that in the chaosness of the present, God has already redeemed. We know how the beginning started. We know the climatic event with Jesus on the cross and we know the glorious future that awaits us. So we're somewhere right now in the middle and trials are coming our way and it can be difficult, but we can cling on to the hope that we have. Why? Because we have the full revelation of God's plan. If we think in this way, then this hope will lead us into praise time and time and time again. So place yourself in the shoes of the recipients now. You are the Christians that Peter is writing the letter to. How encouraged would you be by these reminders? That one, you have the hope of salvation to hold on to. It's eternal and guaranteed. Two, 
you're sure that in these trials, there is a purpose behind it. God can use it to prove the genuineness of your faith. And three, the certainty and full revelation of God's redemptive plan has been given to you already. What a privilege. So for those of us who are facing trials right at the present, as we try to live our lives for Jesus, I hope these same three reasons would encourage you to keep going and allow this hope that we have to lead you to praise. So as I come to a close, I'll invite the worship team up and I wanna share with you guys one last story. Story of Bill and Gloria Gaitha. They're a couple, they're a faithful believer back in the 1900s. They were going through really, really testing times. The husband was ill and that already was difficult for them as a family. But during the 1900s, it was a time when the educational system was infiltrated with the idea that God is dead. And that made it harder for believers to profess their faith. On top of that, drug and racial tension was on the rise in America. And Gloria, the wife, was also expecting a third child. Just the thought of having to carry a third child into such a chaotic world was causing her to be in mental anguish and she was struggling with the, with the idea. It was in that time that one night she was praying to God and God's presence just unexpectedly came and just met her and flooded her with a peace that as we know, when God gives you peace, transcends all understanding. It was as if God saw that one of his child is in need and just came to her rescue. And as she was enveloped by God's peace, she was reminded that Jesus is her living hope. There is a hope that she can cling on to as a believer. And that if the world is in God's hand, the future will be just right. It was in this time, in this difficult time, that what became a defining moment in her life when she penned down these lyrics that we now sing. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future and life is worth the living just because he lives. You know, there's something really powerful about the decision to praise God in hardship. When Paul and Silas praised God in the book of Acts in prison, you guys will remember the story that the prison shackles just broke off and the prison door swung wide open. God was at work powerfully as His people chose to praise God. In the same way, when you praise God in your trials, whether that be through song, through prayer, through words, God is a way of lifting us up out of our present narrow perspective, earthly temporal perspective. And God is a way of lifting us up to see life in His heavenly, spiritual, eternal perspective. And even the most devastating problems that seems impossible to overcome in the present, if God is in the picture and we believe that God is bigger than all those things, then our problems are incomparable compared to how God can provide and how God can deliver. So church, can I ask you all to stand? What I would love for us to do now is that I wanna lift us up in a time of prayer. I wanna lift us up in a time of prayer where we acknowledge that the trials in our lives, especially those of you who are going through them now, are real. They are real challenges. They may cause grief in this present moment. But at the same time, I hope as we pray, 
we can fix our eyes not on the temporal, but fix our eyes on the hope of salvation we have, the future inheritance, and allow that to be the hope that we cling on to so that it leads us to praise. So let me pray. God, we are reminded in this time that You tell us that we can cast our anxieties onto You because You care for us. So every trial that this family here is going through, challenges in our lives, whether it's relational, situational, financial, circumstantial, whatever trials they are, we wanna lift them up to You. Some of us here, we are weighed down, not by trials of our own, but because we're devastated to see the people we love go through trials. Even those burdens, we wanna lift them up to You. And God, as we do that, we wanna look past our present circumstances, take a step of faith forward and say, God, we are looking up. We are looking at You, Jesus, the One who loved us before the foundations of the world was created the one who had us in mind from the beginning of time and the one who had the future redemption planned out from the beginning and the one who loves us so much that you dare not to leave us in this place alone. So God, we wanna cling on to this salvation that we have. We wanna cling on to this glorious hope and allow that to change the way we view the present and be reminded that our problems may be big, but God, you are so much bigger And God, as we do that, may You help us replace our anxiousness with Your peace. And as we do that, may You replace our insecurities with a deep trust towards You. And as we do that, may You help us to change from our reluctance into a heart of obedience. God, we wanna fix our eyes on You. And right now, we wanna do nothing but just to praise your goodness and the hope that we have in you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.